Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the draft edition of Romaniacs, where we agree with the BBC's Chris Mason when he said in a viral clip that nobody has the foggiest idea about what's about to happen, but we'll try our damnedest. <laughs> After months of wrangling, the government in the EU have finally agreed the text for an agreement on Britain's exit from the EU. All that remains now is for a mix of the ERG, Remain Tories, Labour and the DUP to vote it down so we can get on with a catastrophic no-deal exit that's coming next. Or is it? I'm Dorian Linsky. We're sitting down at 2pm on Wednesday, the exact same time that Theresa May is convening her emergency cabinet. So we may end up having to record an emergency podcast inside the actual regular podcast, <laughs> like a Russian dollar podcast. <laughs> to try and make sense of the deal, I've got two of our regulars with me. Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, and she tweets as Pimlicat. Hello, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing anything good last night? Well, <laughs> now you mention it, yes, we had a rally. Um, this was just a, a, a little idea we had on Friday when we had lots of intel that the deal would be out this week, that we ought to have a rally bringing together lots and lots of politicians and lots and lots of people to send a message to MPs to say, vote down the deal. The deal is rubbish. We're not buying it. Off you go. So we held it in Methodist Central Hall, which is, of course, where the very first United Nations Assembly was held in 1946. So a very appropriate place <laughs> for people who are internationalist and want to, you know, keep nations working together to, to come. And we had a star-studded array of people speaking. We had Joe Johnson, the newly resigned minister, in conversation with Gary Lineker. We had David Lammy, we had Caroline Lucas lots of others they were queuing around the block we had to turn people away because we were we were so full there were thousands and thousands of people there you weren't turning away exciting celebrities were you you weren't like giving wouldn't let Femi in <laughs> <laughs> name wasn't down well giving actually, JK Rowling the hi-hat well, we had lots of, sorry love you're not on the list <laughs> we had lots of uh, young people there so that was fantastic and it really didn't have the look and feel of, of many of the marches which can be a bit pale male and stale um, we made the Channel 4 News at 7 live we were on BBC and ITV at 10 we were the top trending issue on UK Twitter for a while um, and if you weren't there and you couldn't follow in the live stream no problem at all just head over to notbuyingbrexit.co.uk and you'll be able to send your MP a message um, about how we're not falling for this deal and that it's not better than our current one. Our producer Andrew Harrison was at the rally last night and here he is in some noisy rooms talking to Lib Dem MP Leila Moran, Liz Savile-Roberts of Plaid Cymru and rebellious Remain Tory Justine Green. It's all very well us sort of in our little echo chamber thinking that we're making a difference but actually it's feeling different out there, out there on the streets when you're in the pubs chatting to people. It's just a no-brainer that we should be having a people's vote at this stage. I think what is absolutely critical, and I, I hope this gets out there, is there is a sense of momentum, but we have to push now. It's not a matter of just thinking that perhaps a little bit of Twitter, a little bit of social media will do it. We've got to go back to the heart of what politics is about. We've got to talk to other people, we've got to put pressure on our members of parliament. We are really... You know, time is pressing on us now. If we can't get this now, then when, when will there be another chance? I think the fact that People's Vote held this amazing rally on the very night what looks like a deal has been sorted out 
gave it a relevance that really demonstrated how now is the moment. Mm. And when people look back in history, today will be one of the days they focus on as a pivotal moment. I hope that what we end up with at the end of this is people up and down our country being able to have their say on that deal, not just 650 MPs in a parliament. Also with us is Alex Andreo, actor, political commentator, singer, cook, and for one night only last week, the most charming man in Stroud. <laughs> <laughs> Alex joined me, Ian Dunn, to producer Andrew, for an exciting away fixture at the Stroud Book Festival last Wednesday. It was, uh, it was fun, wasn't it, Alex? You're just never going to let this go, are you, Dorian? <laughs> it was so, it was so smil- silky smooth. It was oh, like kind God. of, it was Barry White live. It, it, what's considered silky smooth in this context is that basically I remembered one of the names of one of the people in the audience that asked the question and addressed <laughs> her by her name. So afterwards, everyone is going, this Smooth one is for you, Nikki. <laughs> what was her name? Stroud. Was her name Sugar Baby? <laughs> possibly where the confusion has come yes, from. Yes, no, it wasn't. But it was, it was, it was a good crowd, and, uh, and it was quite inspiring. Like, I forgot, I think, that um, the intensity of the emotion yeah. around this issue. And it, the, the, the really, a lot of people were kind of looking for really somewhere to put all this sort of energy, particularly sort of going forward, which yeah. is something we should probably talk about at some point. Um, it definitely felt like addressing a sort of part of a movement. Yeah, and, and, and I think for me, what the lovely thing was, was precisely the emotion of the occasion, because I think we tend to immerse ourselves in statistics and, and, and graphs. That's and, Ian, he's not and, here, it's And fine. the technicalities <laughs> of the deal one way or the other in the customs union. But I think Remainers on the whole have denied the emotional connection that we have to the European Union. And, you know, the fact that it's been the structure around which I have built my life. So for me, it's not only a rational choice. I, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of pointing at Brexiters and saying you're making an emotional choice. I accept that I'm also making an emotional choice. It's just my emotional choice is is supported by better data. That's all. It's no, also it's exactly you know, how I propose to my wife. <laughs> 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 I showed a spreadsheet of, of the living costs together and apart, yeah. and here we are. But do you, do you know what I mean? I, I think it's a mistake to put ourselves forward as these sort of respectable technocrats when actually there is a lot of raw emotion for us too about staying in this structure that, with its flaws, has provided an extraordinary period of peace and prosperity and the freedom to do things that wouldn't have been possible for my parents' generation. It's as simple as that. But haven't we buried that because it is hard to make a, to build an argument on it it's important for us to remember it for our own sort of mental health and as a group i think but at the same time the reason we've been using statistics and all of those sorts of things is that if you go but i feel european someone else is going well we're britain mate and that is that and yeah. no no progress can be made there the only recourse you have is to go look i can prove to you that your butter will be cheaper that's the only that's the only route that you I, can use i accept that i accept that which is why i didn't say let's do away with uh, reason uh, but what we mustn't do is use it as a trump card to say our side is rationalist, therefore we are superior by default. Sure. Yeah. Because I think that's counterproductive. That's when people retreat to Britain first. 
That mysterious voice there was this week's special guest, who knows a thing or two about directionless government dominated by people with borderline personality disorders. It's Chris Addison, the actor and comedian who made his name as the hapless special advisor Ollie Reader in the thick of it. He's been a regular panellist on Mock the Week. He won a Directors Guild of America award for directing episodes of Veep. He was disintegrated by Michelle Gomez on Doctor Who, and Brexit is driving him to despair. Welcome to Romania, it's Chris. Thanks, Thanks man. <laughs> I, I, I'm still seeing it as a sort of help group. I'm, I have nothing to contribute other than I just need a hug, really. Well, things that we that we um, thought at the time were, um, you know, very very harsh satires of dysfunctional government. Like think of it now, looks like a, a model of, of of sort of well ordered government. There were adults in charge. There was there was somebody who ruled only by fear. It, it looks yeah. better. It looks better in retrospect. <laughs> I mean, they, there was at least the sense of a direction. I think in in the, you know they they had they were they had something that they were trying to reach. I suppose the characters and all of those things, and they were they were stopped by their own flaws ultimately. But here, I think the difference is we have people who aren't trying to reach anything in particular, or at least don't know what it is that they're trying to reach, other than their own sort of political survival. We're in the thick of it. I'm sorry, I'm answering your question very seriously, but in the thick of it, and, and in the, joke, the, the point of those the point of those shows is that like Tucker, Malcolm Tucker, who is a great villain in all sorts of respects, actually. His that his whole purpose is to get the policies he believes in through. That's why he's like that. Um, whereas these people are just sort of clinging on to power because it's what they're all trained for. And Amanda Yanucci has, has said a few times, I think, that sort of reality has spiked the guns of, of satire. And although mm. people might crave a kind of Brexit-era revival of the thick of it... Um, that it, that it wouldn't work. And, of course, we'll talk about this later, but people have similar kind of, uh, you know, issues with, with satire in America at the moment. Mm. Do, you, do you think that's true, that that, kind of, that that kind of show struggles with the current, would struggle with the current reality? I, th- I think that um, the, any sort of veneer of importance or respectability around formal politics has gone. And that, that satire, if you, if you go all the way back to the early 60s and you look at the original satire boom, the whole thing about satire was that, and, and in fact, even further back than that, you can go to Hogarth and everything, and, and you can go to Juvenile, you can go all the way back. Satire is always about, yeah, and, you, and you, you are always looking at people who are basically pointing a, a finger and going, that thing that those people are saying is ridiculous and those people are ridiculous. And they are dressing themselves up in a particular way to make themselves look impressive and knowledgeable and so forth. And we have entirely lost that. And politics' big challenge now is for the very many great people in it to uh, show us, uh, to to show everybody at large, that actually not all politicians are venal and self-serving and incompetent. And it's difficult to get that message across through the extraordinary noise of Finality, incompetence, and self-serving <laughs> that is happening on a daily basis. And I mean, in your sort of role as a, a sort of topical comedian on a show like Mot the Week, it, it seems like Brexit on the one giveth with one hand with, with sort of endless streams yeah. of material and venality, but on the other hand, the punchline is always the same. Like, this is stupid. Like, yes. Is, so, what's it like managing to sort of you know trying to sort of spin that? into kind of jokes that feel like they're not all part of one big joke. I think actually to to do it on something like Mock the Week is very, very hard because you are you're 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 painting in primary colours there because you can only ever take the sort of surface level uh, headline news and make a joke about that fundamentally. You can sort of try and explain a little bit of the detail and then make a joke, but you are taking people down a <laughs> down a bit of a path to do that and that's never entirely satisfactory. I think that the root of 
where the funny stuff would come from, if you were really looking to make a satire out of Brexit, the the funny stuff will be in the rooms where it's being negotiated. Yeah. It will be in the technical aspects of it. That's where the funny things are happening, where they are sitting there and their, their iPads aren't working at the moment that they need their iPad to be working. Or the fact that somebody is saying something to another one, saying, saying some, something like, we need access to the database uh, concerning uh, all travel incoming to the UK. And the other person opposite the table, opposite them, uh, says, uh, yeah, that's great. I'm just going to go talk to 27 people and find out their initial position on that. And, and translate the deal in yeah. their language, yeah. which is something a lot of people yeah. forget. And then this I, document. Yeah, it's got to go into <laughs> at least 27 other languages. What does the Brexit Secretary character realise quite late in the day? Uh, <laughs> that a lot of goods come in through Dover. <laughs> that is a really good example of, of, how, of how those things work. I mean, it would be really interesting because actually at the centre of this, we use the word technocrat like like it's a bad thing uh, a lot of the time. And actually, I sort of I sort of long for a technocracy yeah. because it implies some sort of competence and, a, and attention to actuality. Um, but, I, but there are hugely talented civil servants, not that many of them, actually. Uh, uh, not that there are, I'm saying the rest are talentless. I'm just saying there aren't that many people who are actually at the coalface of this who are doing the day-to-day negotiating, who are then having to deal with with the rabs of this world being flown in and dealing with the fact that in, technically that person is uh, above them in this process and yet he's a numpty who doesn't know anything. Even if you took his politics away from him, he doesn't have enough We've information or We've all worked or, or for ability. a boss that didn't oh, know what they were doing. Every, that's everybody working that's for all true. of their bosses. They all, <laughs> everyone thinks that. But... but, but that, but if you if you transpose that into uh, something that is so existential and so important like Brexit, I think that's where you'll find the comedy yeah. is in the, that group of people trying to deal with that and their own internal politics and their family lives. Oh God, sounds like a pitch. I'm, I'm very sorry, I have no. I would absolutely, power. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I'd love to make that. Right. Love to. Whereas I have no power at all in this. Yeah, that's a stinking shame. world. All right, I'm out of here. <laughs> Chris will be with us throughout the show as we look at the deal. What's in it? Who hates it? What's to like? And what happens next? The so-called Taxpayers' Alliance decides to cave in its unlawful dismissal case with whistleblower Shamir Sani, rather than admit the source of its funding, which is a totally legit secret. Mm-hmm. We rummage through a can of worms that contains the host of right-wing pressure groups who all coincidentally share the same office address in London, which is another good sitcom premise. Indeed. <laughs> a load of right-wing, <laughs> load of right-wing think tanks Maybe all sharing a space. They're, not, they're all right-wing. I'm not completely sure that you've got the conflict that you really need for a decent sitcom there. But Maybe they like seem to get on... drama, like the sort of the House of Elliot. Well, they have no I would problem... suggest some sort of reality show where, where one by one they're eliminated. Yes. <laughs> well, at the moment they have no problems getting on TV, so no, that's <laughs> we don't need the true. show. And will stripping the shelves of toilet paper help the case for a people's vote? Must check that one. <laughs> That's after these quick announcements from Alex. Pantomime season is nearly upon us, and we are playing our part with the last Remaniacs Live of 2018 at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Monday, 10th December. Come down for a live edition of our podcast with the addition of a few Christmas classics such as Brexit is a Disaster, Oh No It Isn't, Oh Yes It Is, and Where's Our Bright Economic Future? It's Behind You! Tickets are on sale now at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. They're selling fast. And if you back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, you'll get a discount on tickets. Supporters get, get Remaniacs merchandise and every podcast a day early and a weekly column from the panel as well. Just search Patreon Remaniacs for more information or go to the Remaniacs Facebook page. 
That's Romaniacs Live on Monday the 10th of December. Tickets at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. Thanks, Alex. Now hold your noses for this week's Brexit news. First up, the deal. May has apparently agreed a 500-page draft and is presenting its cabinet right now as we speak. But one-to-one meetings on Tuesday night did not produce immediate resignations. Key provisions of the deal that have leaked so far include a UK-wide customs backstop to ensure no hard border in Ireland. Hard Brexiters are predictably outraged. But it's temporary with independent arbitrations. The DUP are predictably outraged. Nemi, at this precise moment in time (laughs) on Wednesday afternoon, uh, what do we know about the deal? And and if you squint hard enough, does it look like checkers? Um, So what have we heard so far today? I mean, I just hate doing this because I know it's going to be completely out of date to listen to me as once they hear it. Wait, we we know that there uh, is this customs arrangement. We know that there is frictionless trade. Uh, That was going to be a sticking point for some potential um, resignations. So uh, those haven't come forward. So we're pretty confident that frictionless trade is in it. So it's close enough to checkers. um, And given the lack of noise coming from cabinet members who would usually be exercised about it, I suspect she is going to get it through cabinet as we speak. Because the ERG went out and slagged off the deal without even even reading it. Yeah. Um, can we expect them to produce any resignations? <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, I I I think we're all working towards the position that the majority of the ERG probably will row in and vote for it. Um, really? Yeah. Mm. The DUP That's are the ones that are potentially... I mean, at, at the moment, so um, before I came on air, there was noise on Twitter that um, the the government had been refused to be drawn on the question of whether their confidence and supply arrangement with the DUP was currently functioning. Right. So that was a question that was put to them this morning and they, didn't, they refused to answer. Um, so... You know, she may get it through cabinet, but we might not actually have a government by the end of the day if the DB walk away. So it's no not it's not there, clear then. that she will get the deal through. <laughs> indeed, um, and and we're pretty confident now that some of the Labour MPs who were wavering are less likely to waver and will vote down the government deal. So the parliamentary arithmetic of it remains absolutely knife edge at this stage. Right. Some of the ERGers will have to do serious rowing back, having seen their interviews in the last few days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're not, they're not exactly holding back on their criticism. No. Um. And and the sequencing of all of this is interesting. So uh, there will be the statement in the Commons tomorrow, tomorrow. on Thursday, um, and we're then not entirely sure what then has to happen. There was some rumour this morning that the Commons might vote on it before it goes to the emergency summit. Then that got rowed back from and it looked like it was going to go to Brussels at the end of this month with a potential vote on the 10th of December. Uh, It's still not quite clear. I I suspect the early rumour came from the government knowing that they were more likely to get it through the Commons if they voted on it quickly and didn't give some of the dimmer MPs time to actually read it and get up to speed yeah. with how bad it is and how vassal state it is um, and how by no Brexit and name only it really is. Um, so, but however, you know, it, it's it's all just moving so fast minute yeah. by minute. It's, it's very, very hard to make predictions. Mm-hmm. But for for the ERG, I think there probably still is that, you know, that risk of do we give them soft Brexit now because that makes getting a harder Brexit easier later on yeah, yeah. or do we vote against this and then 
that is such a gift to the People's Vote campaign that that then the wind is totally in our sails that you know they 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 may not forgive themselves for doing that. So it I, I don't know is the real answer. Mm. Alex, Joe Johnson resigned last Friday. Uh, He wrote, To present the nation with a choice between two deeply unattractive outcomes, vassalage and chaos, is a failure of British statecraft on a scale unseen since the Suez Crisis, which is sort of what we've been saying for months, except without using the word vassalage, which is very very Johnson in. It's been a few days since the resignation. Obviously, it was very big news at the time. What what have been the uh, consequences of this? Um, I quite like the idea of one of the Johnson brothers talking about two very unattractive options. Um, (laughs) Look, I think it it was a game changer in that it was the first time a sort of remaining member of the cabinet resigned and expressed um, himself in in language that was very close to what the sort of Brexit extremists have been saying so far. I think there's a huge danger to that as well. I think if we end up adopting the language of the people who are advocating the hardest possible Brexit, we are also um, endorsing their argument. And I think there's a danger that it might actually push the public towards a no deal rather than towards a remain. Um, You know, PMQs was on today and there there were a couple of questions from Corbyn that could have been asked by Jacob Rees-Mogg. I mean, he was talking about vassal state this and and remember, this is someone whose labor policy is basically this permanently. So he's looking at a transitional deal which involves us staying in the customs union and saying this is vassal state stuff at a time when his party's policy is advocating being in this deal permanently. So I think we must be really, really careful about that. Um, To me, a 52-48 vote screams Norway deal, actually. You know, putting aside my remaining hopes... A, a, a result that close screams a compromise uh, that's Norway style. And it says that because actually that's how Norway ended up in that kind of compromise via a narrow loss of a referendum to go into the European Union. So they looked at it and said, well, if we're basically split down the middle as a nation, the best thing we can do is find a way to not be in the European Union, but be as close to the European Union as possible. And there is a danger to going down the road where it becomes such a high-stakes poker game that you're saying it's either no-deal drop off the cliff edge or remain. That that's all I'd say. But is it, Corbyn's not thinking about the deal at all, is he? I mean, it's, it's, he's not interested in any kind of Brexit deal. He's simply interested in forcing a situation in, in, which there will, in, which, in which there will be another election. Yeah. So he's saying whatever whatever is necessary well, for that. I mean, the extraordinary thing is that no one is interested in the deal, essentially, because no one is talking about the political declaration, which actually has to do with the deal that we permanently right, end absolutely. up in. Everyone is talking about, about the transitional the, period, yeah. essentially. You know, uh, Boris Johnson is saying we will uh, we will end up with Parliament dying after a thousand years of sovereignty, even though... He has spent the last two years saying that we've ceded all sovereignty to the European (laughs) Union. Um, Someone point that out to him, please. Um, You know, but we're talking about only a transitional period. 
And no one is focusing on what the permanent deal coming is going to be, which is, I think, the real argument for Remainers. Mm. I think the real argument for Remainers is to say we will not sign up to this irreversible constitutional change on good faith that you will then maybe end up with a decent deal two years down the line. That's not how this will work. We're not giving you a carte blanche to do whatever. And it's still all hanging on the backstop and the temporary versus permanent nature of that backstop. You know, when is a backstop not a backstop? Uh, What does the word backstop even mean? We talk about vassal being a word we didn't use. No one was really using backstop. Yeah, that's true. It, it, uh, the last time I used it, I think, it was when I played rounders at primary school and you had the backstop behind the batter who would have to catch the ball. Um, Is and... a vassal backstop? The, the cork, <laughs> well, I think that's where we are. The cork you put at the rear end of a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, I think in this case, they want the backstop to be temporary for the DUP and permanent for the Irish. Um, you know, how yeah. they squared that magic borders. Uh, it's the kind of Brexit deal that I don't know. It's that's pretty JK Rowling in terms of yeah. plot, plots and magical thinking. I mean, the, the, the funniest, the, the funniest Brexit position is actually the DUPs mm-hmm. because basically Northern Ireland is making out like a bandit. Yeah, they're getting a fantastic deal compared to all the rest of us. And the DUP are basically saying no. They will get exactly as shitty a deal as everyone else. Um, Chris, obviously, uh, Johnson & Johnson is a popular brand of vassalage. Outstanding. That's it. That's it. uh, You've been listening to Romaniacs, and that's that's the end of this podcast. But the Guardian cover story on on Joe Johnson's resignation quoted Joe Johnson, Boris Johnson, and Rachel Johnson. Yeah. Um, as uh, As with trying to work out what Corbyn thinks... I mean, as as a kind of Brexit watcher, is the kind of the sort of the personal political psychodrama aspect of it quite wearing? That, that so much of it is just trying to think, what is Bo- what's Boris Johnson going to do next? What's Corbyn really thinking? Well, this it, kind of it comes down to these maddening individuals. It does, presumably because they are given some sort of weight in terms of how how they think is going to impact on a tranche of supporters and particularly those close to the levers of power and how scared um, senior conservative politicians are of Boris Johnson, who is this sort of boogeyman figure, really, isn't he, for, yeah, for yeah. them? In that he, you know, don't do anything bad or Boris will come and take your job as PM. That is effectively <laughs> how the Tory party has operated <laughs> psychologically for the last five years or so. And it's insane because he is, you know, as, as Jess Phillips said on Twitter earlier today, he's a busted flush. Yep. Except you can never be truly know that to be the case with Johnson who is essentially Rasputin you can shoot him stab him try and drown him <laughs> he will bob up in that Moscow river uh, and come back and get your kids so it, it's uh, I mean it is wearing because there is a sense of self-importance around those people particularly the sort of Johnson dynasty and the Reese Moggs and all those people with Corbyn I think it's a different kind of frustration what's interesting about Corbyn is how in in uh, and I think this will be exposed by his response to this transitional deal and the statements of sort of uh, the statement of intention that accompanies mm. it. What will be fascinating will be that he has been able to go look at all the people who are following me. Look at all my followers, um, and now we know because of the fabulous polling that, that you guys have done, that, that, you know, that many many of those people do not 
the vast remotely. Majority, the vast majority yeah. of, of his of of his uh, followers don't think in the same way that that he does, um, and so his bluff is about to be called. I think in terms of whether he's a, actually you know a um, a man of the people of his people, or whether he is just trying to get himself into a position where where a lifelong desire for uh, trashing the EU um, is within his sights. Uh, so I think the two the two psychodramas are fundamentally slightly different. They are nonetheless wearying because ultimately what it comes down to is uh, a, a policy or, or a subject that affects all of us like no other subject yeah. has in our lifetimes, including the NHS, because it encapsulates all of those other things. And to reduce it to, to um, names of people who have spent decades attempting to get themselves into a position where they wield this kind of power uh, that allows them to feel good about themselves is um, galling. Mm. Let's move on to the astonishing case of Shamir Sani and the self-designated Taxpayers Alliance, the Alliance of Taxpayers. The right-wing pressure group and regular BBC <laughs> chair-filling outfit implicitly admitted that it illegally fired whistleblower Sani and legally attacked him on the BBC in coordination with other linked groups. The Taxpayers Alliance accepted all Sani's allegations of unfair and wrongful dismissal, discrimination and dismissal by reason of a philosophical belief in the sanctity of British democracy, which is the best kind of dismissal, <laughs> I think. Yeah. That's better than just like... Nicking yeah, stationery, yeah. <laughs> yeah. printering. You know. yeah. We caught him in the sanctity of democracy cupboard yeah. and uh, <laughs> set up his P45. Sunny alleged that the Taxpayers Alliance coordinated with a network of nine right wing organisations, including Brexit Central, the Adam Smith Institute, the Centre for Policy Studies, the Institute of Economic Affairs, and Leave Means Leave, all headquartered at 55 Tufton Street. Alex, why did the Taxpayers Alliance... Dis- 55 Tufton Street does sound like the kind of thing that was on at one o'clock for yeah. five minutes in the 70s when you were a kid. You'd watch it when you were ill. Yes, absolutely. It's, a, it's an Oliver yes. Postgate animation that never happened. time between programmes that yeah. didn't quite come up. Of, and now it's time for another visit to 55 Tufton Street. But there's like a free market hamster yeah. or something. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Ben goes in in that bowler hat and the striped trousers and comes out in the bowler hat and the striped trousers. Yeah. Whatever, whatever he does. <laughs> Alex, please please explain why the Taxpayers' Alliance decided not to contest this action. Oh, um, I long for easy questions like this. Um, (laughs) No, it actually is. It it has a one-word answer, disclosure. That's all it is. If they get into a court uh, proceedings, the other side can ask them to disclose all kinds of information. And once they disclose all kinds of information to a big team of lawyers, paralegals, secretaries, etc., etc., all that stuff can leak out. And they're not going to take that risk a stitch for, what, time is, for what is effectively pocket change to them. Mm. It's as simple as, as that. It's all about protecting the identity of their donors. That's what it always comes down to. Carol Kawalada said that now that this has happened... Uh, it means that it's not possible for those people to to call themselves think tanks now that it's clear that they're lobbyists and mm-hmm. they will have to be treated differently by media outlets. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think it will just be his, uh, somebody from the right-wing think tank and the Adam Smith Institute? Once I mean, I'm going to ask you, Naomi, for, to, to give us a breakdown on 55 Tufton Street. Um, <laughs> 55 <laughs> Tufton Street. <laughs> Door is always closed <laughs> at 55. <laughs> but... But, I mean, it seems to me, I mean, one of my, my real sort of bugbears is the, um, is the booking policy of your news nights and question times or whatever, because there have been questions about Taxpayers Alliance for, for yonks now. 
And it's almost like, well, where do you get your funding from? I mean, that's basically mm-hmm. that their Twitter fit mentions. It's always, where do you get your funding from? And yet you will still see low tax Chloe popping up and they just go, yeah, she's from the Alliance of Taxpayers. <laughs> yep. um, so it seems, it seems to me that very little will, will, will sort of change. The, the, the BBC just seems, un- and, and other networks, just seem unable to sort of designate these groups differently and be more sort of demanding. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Do you do you think that that, that this kind of moves the the needle sufficiently? Probably not. Um, I think there is a big, what one of the big dangers is referring to them as um, different kinds of organisations because actually, uh, the truth is that. that's unhelpful because when you get down to it a lot of them are the same people they're working out the same offices they're going to the same meetings and they just wear different hats so for instance there's a guy called Shankar Singham he was at the Legatum Institute he's just sort of done a bit of a sideways move to the IEA Um, you know there there is this real revolving door and it's so embedded in the culture of the senior end of the Conservative Party that you know uh, you've got people like Stephen Parkinson who's Theresa May's political secretary um, who was former director of research at the Centre for Policy Studies which is another one of the 55 Tufton Street outfit um, groups so it's deeply unhelpful so maybe it'll help to expose a little bit of the fact that these aren't different organisations they're almost you know different urls and actually it's the same people sat in the same office wearing different hats that that may but you know this is the bbc we're talking about who have you know put farage on there however many hundreds of times more than they've put people from you know for instance the green party and and liberal democrat party so i i, I don't know that this will be the thing that that really changes but them. how hard could it be to just introduce them as mysteriously financed right-wing lobby group well indeed <laughs> like i don't know this is, well, that are not impartial yeah, I mean, look, it's been it's been rumoured for a long time um, that these supposedly independent organisations have a Tuesday morning meeting and that that is chaired by Jonathan Isaby. Um, he's editor of Brexit Central. He was formerly the chief exec of the Taxpayers Alliance um, and that he's the one that's coordinating all of the activities between them. Um, and quite recently, they've confirmed that this does indeed happen. Now, this has implications, many implications. The first one I think that's really interesting is the ramifications for their independence. So the IEA, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which Shamir Sani worked for, is a registered charity. So that means that they're kind of very, very restricted on the amount of political campaigning they're actually allowed to do. Um, the Charity Commission has already found the IEA uh, guilty of breaching it's a ch- charity, it's a charity rules. Yeah. It's the one everyone wants to give to. Yeah. Isn't it? Always, yeah. Yeah. always yeah. shuggers going. Yeah. Would yeah. you like yeah. to donate do to the IEA? Where do yeah. they sell the IEA Christmas cards? <laughs> That's right. You can actually, if you don't want to give stuff for Christmas, you can <laughs> donate a goat to the IEA yeah. who will yeah. slaughter it at their Tuesday morning. <laughs> well, you're right to flag it because the Charity Commission has got an ongoing investigation into them. Um, secondly, it raises questions, I think, about uh, their funding, as as we sort of touched on and... and um, Uh, Alex rightly pointed out. So, for instance, the Adam Smith Institute is primarily registered in the USA and raises a lot of its money in the USA. Um, But they're all very, very opaque about where they get all of it from people called Adam Smith. (laughs) It's like the the Norade of right wing British (laughs) things. My my oldest brother's called Adam Smith. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Um, Anyway, there's this ongoing exercise that some of you probably know about, which is called the Who Funds You campaign. And that assesses the funding transparency of every single think tank um, and each of the 55 Tufton Street think tanks gets the lowest grade which is a grade E, e. meaning that they pretty much reveal absolutely nothing about who funds them um, 
But what we do know... They're very inefficient as a fridge. (laughs) (laughs) But what we do know is that the IEA has published pro-tobacco things when they've received some tobacco industry funding in the past. So their refusal to say whether or not... um, They've received any uh, conflict of interest uh, money in terms of advancing the pro-Brexit line because, weirdly, they're all obsessively pro-Brexit or not, you know, remains to be seen. Um, Neither the ASI nor the IEA are actually at Tufton Street, um, but they are a two-minute walk away around the corner. Um, So just, you know, as a a point of clarity there. Um, And thirdly, um, the links to Downing Street, as as I've mentioned, are really interesting. And you've got this revolving door and, you know, uh, the, the, I think you know the, the the sniff test leads you right the way to the prime minister. Um, you know the fact that she's still got Parkinson there with her. You know sat mm. sat there working with her hand in hand. You know so you know. <laughs> Once you're it, in, it, you're in, aren't you? Yeah, in that circle yeah. And 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 the control that they've been able to exercise over the BBC. You know through the you know, government threats to cuts to the licence fee and things like that, it, it is all part of it. Um, so who would attempt to expose them when basically you'll be exposing yourself, exactly. your links to exactly. them? It becomes exactly, very difficult. Exactly, exactly. Um, one, one other thing um, is that um, as well as the Charity Commission investigating the IEA, there is also an ongoing investigation by the lobbying czar after the lobbying expose of them by Greenpeace this summer. So props to Greenpeace who have actually been doing some really good investigative was work. That, was that when they were selling sort of access to uh, UK ministers for US donors. Is that the one? Yeah. Okay. Well, if any of those shows would like to invite us on for the first time, our funding is just Patreon, some adverts, reasonably priced mugs and T-shirts, and all the paperwork is in a shoebox under producer Andrew's bed. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to look through it. (laughs) Finally, on the news front, how's your stockpiling of essential supplies going? A Cardiff cold storage warehouse has run out of room because the food industry is storing up supplies ahead of Brexit. The BBC reported that Wild Water of Cardiff had 1.75 million turkey grounds, 7,000 pallets of cakes and 1,000 pallets of mozzarella sticks, all the essentials, in storage and was turning away business every day. I don't know why they just thought, man, if people don't get mozzarella sticks, there's <laughs> going to be right. They're going to go fucking mental. Meanwhile, Premier Foods is stockpiling ingredients for the Bisto, Oxo and Mr. Kipling brands. So that's the 1970s diet I bet they eat all that in Tufton Street. (laughs) (laughs) And to illustrate our dependence on just-in-time delivery, a group called Bog Roll Buy-Up is urging Remainers to buy up all the toilet roll in Britain on Monday the 19th and leave a note saying, toilet paper shortages, welcome to Brexit. Ask your MP for a final say. This sounds like it might not go down well. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> That's it. There's no further nuance to add to that. It's a terrible idea. There's good idea. people like wiping their asses with their hands and going, yeah, but it's a good point well made. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, if you're going to create a shortage, you shouldn't really warn the supermarkets that there's going to be a huge demand for yes. X product on that date because yes. they might, you know, I don't know. And they'll be looking out for them, won't they? We're looking out for kind of like metropolitan elitists <laughs> with trolleys full of bog rolls. Only, just going, but only no, mate, I've just, I've just, oh, I've got the runs. I'm sorry, but a vegan diet does require, you know, <laughs> more, more toilet roll than the average person. It'll only be the recycled stuff that goes. All of the, you the, know, all, yes, that's of, the, true. That's all true. of the quilted soft stuff will be, will, will remain there. But also, what a thing 
to choose. Like, literally, the thing that has the largest volume. Like, I'm going to yeah. fill my house with bog roll. <laughs> Why couldn't they go with something small? Like, like saffron. Buy up or, yes. <laughs> saffron. <laughs> you could clear can... out all the saffron in Britain and put it in a rucksack. <laughs> That'll hit them where it hurts. <laughs> ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、ブレクシットはい、
me who I don't know you're the you're the actor but I was just trying to kind of like no you know, no I love it. it was a good, a good table the read obviously we'll we'll change it in rehearsal I love it I love it well what a what a shocker I mean not not also not no no not remotely shocker <laughs> so if two people were going to resign it was going to be those two people yeah. and I'm so delighted to see the back of Esther McVeigh yeah may she rot in the back benches awful <laughs> well our special guest today Full of sunshine and kindness. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at 55 Tufton Street and I'm feeling great. Right. <laughs> Is Chris Anderson, the mysteriously funded comedian, actor, <laughs> director and fellow Brexit I mean, I have no idea why I get paid either. But <laughs> uh, Chris, we, we, we asked this uh, of a few of our guests. Take your mind back to, mm. to the referendum result. Mm. And, um, and, and where were you and did you see it coming? Uh, I, I went to bed shortly after Sunderland had declared their result because that was when I it was clear from that point that exactly what was going to happen and then uh, was woken up by the radio news as every as every morning it was a lovely still beautiful day was, much yeah. as it had been on March the 3rd 97 May the 3rd 97 mm. it might have been on March the 3rd 97 I don't remember really <laughs> but I do remember May the 3rd and um and uh, I remember just taking my I have two young school aged kids taking them to their school, where many of our friends and their friends and their friends' parents <clears throat> are um, EU citizens uh, from other countries. And I remember feeling crushingly embarrassed. Like, I didn't know... These are really good friends of mine. I didn't know quite how to respond to them. It was strange. Mm. It was an odd still morning. It felt like yeah. everything had stopped. And how many times a day do you think about Brexit? And how does it make you feel? I'm exhausted with it. I was just, Naomi and I were just talking before we came on about, there are times where I think I have to stop thinking about this. I have to move away from my own mental health. Uh, And then it feels like, because everything's happening so quickly all the time, it feels like some kind of dereliction of duty. What duty? I don't know, because all I do is snark on Twitter. But but ultimately, it just, it feels like it, it, it must command your attention because it is so existential. Yeah. The truth of the matter is I'm quite a lucky person because I get quite paid quite well at the moment at any rate in what I do. So I'll be fine. But I, but my kids won't necessarily be fine and their friends won't necessarily be fine. And it's everybody else. This is the thing that drives me spare is when people say, I am prepared to take a hit in living standards oh, uh, in order to get this sovereignty back. Well, it's not your living, just your living standards. If it was, OK, the 52 percent then don't get to move around or, or whatever if it was if it it's everybody's living standards everybody's job yeah. it's so incredibly selfish uh, i can't i can't bear it and because within 20 seconds of you asking me that question i've wound myself up <laughs> this is a good demonstration of how i uh, uh, approach brexit and why i am exhausted exhausted and you were saying uh, about making jokes about this on on, on mock the week that you you it's it's very hard to sort of <clears throat> get deep into the weeds of policy. Um, Is there a reason why we don't have uh, a show like The Daily Show or John Oliver where it it, it really can be, I mean, it's obviously very fairly partisan, Mm. but it can really properly explain in in the way that basically you see going viral. A clip of quite a complex policy issue is not going to be from CNN, it's going to be from John Oliver. And Is there a reason why we can't have that here? Well, um, John's is the best... Uh, example, I think, because it's the most um, detailed. One of the great things about his show is that it, it's investigative journalism with jokes. So in his staff, he has huge numbers of 
journalists who are finding stories, um, uh, expanding on those stories for him, as well as his big staff of comedy writers. And the big staff thing, that's pretty much why we can't have it. We don't have mm. the resources. Um that they have there. We also have a slightly different culture of news here, although all of that is changing now uh, with social media and the internet. But fundamentally, we pay far more attention to our printed, what was our printed media, um, and still our newspapers, websites and so forth, than we do to our Sky News or BBC News 24, which are the only equivalents of CNN, Fox, MSNBC and so on. Whereas in America, they live in a world of sort of tabloid television. And that is a very televisual thing Mm. that you can go on to use to illustrate your points and so forth. It's much harder for us for us to do it. So from from a technical and those shows are incredibly well funded and not only are they well funded but they are allowed to run for a very long time the people behind them understand that they have to spend months if not years finding their voice and their feet and bedding in and all of building that kind of thing audience. building an audience and so on it's it's interesting there's a there's a very good book about the daily show and how it came about mm. which is essentially an interview with um, most of the key participants and one, most of the ones who became sort of famous off it um it's a really interesting book because it reminds you that actually when you go back in the in the history of that show, it took several years before it, it took really till 2002 and that, that election before they they themselves understood what it was that they were doing. Uh, and here it's here. It's very difficult for us to do it. And also people aren't looking over Comedy Central and HBO's shoulders in quite the same way that we would be looking over the shoulders of the BBC, for example, or even Channel 4. Mm. And those organisations, which are great organisations, mm. do not have the depth of they do not have the capacious wallets to allow them the patience to be able to let one of those things run long enough to become what it needs to be. And you mentioned um, civil servants earlier and how and how that was the kind of you you would be interested to see inside sort of the rooms where, where yeah. they were working. Um, when you were were in the thick of it, did you did you do sort of, you know, workshopping and observing the way that civil servants and spads and, and all those kind of people work? I never went and I never went and watched them. Certainly we had um, we had various people from within the Labour Party and the Conservative Party latterly uh, and the civil service come and talk to us and uh, Armando had researched it quite assiduously. Um, you know, Peter famously says that because obviously uh, Malcolm Tucker, people think, oh, it's Alistair Campbell, um, and and uh, Peter Capaldi, who played Tucker, always said, no, no, it, it's not Campbell. I've never seen him do anything. I've based him on the Hollywood agents that I know, which is exactly how they behave. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, but it seems, but it's, it's it feels right. It feels it feels plausible. What I do know is that. Um, People in government used to say to us all the time, how do you know? That's, yeah. that's exactly like <laughs> it is. But fundamentally, all you're doing is you're taking humans who are, by and large, and I include all humans in this, idiots, uh, and you put them in a, in a position where they're under extreme pressure, pressure and, and the stakes are incredibly high, and that is what you get. Because ultimately, the thick of it is a, an office politics, an office sitcom, or a fa- you can actually yeah, yeah. You, can, you can look at it as a family sitcom if you want to. You can, you can find a family in all of those characters. Um, it's, the sa- it's the same thing. It's just humans, humans acting under pressure. And the, the language... In that show, you know, for obviously it was starting sort of Labour, and then you had the more kind of the Cameroons coming in. Yeah. So much of the, the humour was uh, you know, 
to make fun of the kind of the language. And I suppose it is that sort of what we now look back on as a fairly technocratic, yeah. centrist era. Mm. We could have a lot of fun with kind of, you know, the Steve Hilton yeah. figures kind of yeah. nonsense jargon. Um, I'm an American, Peter, not an American. <laughs> what, what does that even mean? <laughs> I love that. I, that's one of my favorite. I think of that all the time. I don't remember many words, many lines from it. Like that, yeah. Why are you saying that? Yeah. But politics seems sort of angrier now. Yeah. And that seems like, I was talking earlier about how you would, would do it now, but it seems like, you know, that you, you might not just have the kind of viewers' uh, sympathy for these people even as they were fucking up, that they might just be more rage around yeah, it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... Politics seems to have moved away from, or, or rather, people watching politics and asking questions of it have moved away from why or how are you going to do that to why are you doing that or even how dare you do that. And so there's, I mean, there is no room for, for nuance, that's for sure. But the, but actually part of what was happening in Thick of It and in, in The Loop and Veep is that uh, you can try and put nuance in, but actually you've just got to get through your day. You've just got to get through your day, and it's an absolute kickbollock scramble to just stay ahead of the of the wave that is coming after you. And uh, so, I, I think I think probably an awful lot of that still is exactly as ever it was. Possibly there's just the waves are bigger, and you're having to run faster now. And you directed a lot of episodes of Veep. Yeah. Last for the last series uh, season, I interviewed the showrunner David Mandel oh, did you? and the cast, and and they said they sort of had to. I mean, they think you're doing it anyway because the character Selena was out of office. Yeah. But they, they sort of they liked the chance to step sideways because they didn't want to take on Trump because they never did take on yeah. real world politicians. They yes. never had an Obama figure. Yeah. But also there was a problem that I think Matt Walsh said that Sean Spicer was actually worse at his job than, 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 than Mike, Mike was. McClintock yeah. was. So yeah. there was this sense that sort of reality had <laughs> yeah. kind of outdone them, which is yeah. which is true. He was just like, I totally, I wouldn't like, have lied how, about the inauguration. How many times on this podcast have we said, if you wrote this as a fiction, right. you'd, you're, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. It, you, would, you know, it would be rejected no, exactly, as far-fetched. Exactly. But, the, but then I got the thing that by having to, by making, I think, a good creative decision to avoid Trump, the mm. show then felt less relevant because, you know, sort of Trump is, is everything. He kind of swallows all the oxygen in the room. Do you think it's sort of US politics right now for, for a show of that nature is kind of it's sort of going for the the least worse option that you, you you don't want to try and compete with reality, but it's hard also if you just ignore the reality. Well, it, you've got so by the time Trump turned up, I, we were making season five, which is the last season I worked on a, on, on that show, uh, at the point that the election was happening. So so you're already five years. You're you're forty eight episodes into these very established characters. By the yeah. time this enormous disruption into normal process uh, turns up, what do you do? You can't suddenly turn Selena into Trump. You've got to. I mean, if you're going to bring Trump and Trumpism in, that has to be that's. That's a bunch of characters that you have never seen so far, unless you're going to suddenly do, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe the uh, radio radioactivity on airport security was too strong as they all went through, and suddenly their characters are all entirely changed. That is your; those are your fundamental is, two, two options. This is there. good. This is good script writing. So, yeah. Yeah. so, so, so it's hard to, for something with existing characters to to take something like Trump on. I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't seen the president show. I'm not sure how uh, effectively Trump is is being 
taken on particularly and, and how you can do it. Because, as you say, it is so insanely ridiculous. I mean, every day I wake up and go, the, he must have... There can't be anything that surprises me. And every day yeah. he will he will say or do or tweet something that makes you go, why would you even begin the thought process that would take you to, to that point? Well, I think the thing that makes me wistful is and what I feel has been lost is the sense that, that, that certain things would be, you know, embarrassing and would be very difficult. Ah. Like if, if Selena in Veep declined to go to a veteran ceremony yes. because it was raining. Yeah. That would be a whole episode mm -hmm. about the massive, the media shitstorm, and she's in trouble with the president, and all these things that could yes. go wrong. And um, in reality, it's just like it's kind of like rather play golf. Trump being Trump, like it just it just moves on. So there's almost like there's there's not there's a lot of kind of plot. Trump throws up loads of plot ideas. Yes, but they don't really get they don't really go anywhere. So. Well, that, but that's really interesting because actually <coughs> that is fundamentally his problem is that he doesn't that there is nothing that he does that is pursuing a line. He's distracted by boredom, shiny objects, um, and monomania, and those those things throw him off course all the time. It's why it's impossible for real humans to deal with him because you're dealing with somebody who is not acting in social norms, let alone political norms. That is. That is a real problem that we have because actually there are norms that are attached to that office and the processes associated with that office and the uh, the system that that office sits at the top yeah, of yeah. that we have to keep uh, uh, we have to keep addressing and we have to keep going through in order for the whole thing not to fall apart. But if the person sitting in there is not adhering to the same set of norms as you are... Then, you, you, yeah, you have a chaos that's very difficult to script in any dramatic art. You can't, yes. The good fight, I think, is a, is, a, is a nice example of something that does deal with Trump head-on, right. but without including him. And I think that's a really clever thing they're doing because they're basically I don't know if you've seen it no. it's really very good I don't but do what, anything apart from <laughs> yes, no, I mean, what they're doing what they're doing is basically <laughs> dealing with the shock the effectively the PTSD of mm. the liberals at Trump having happened yeah you know, which is a really good angle into it so so every week Trump does something but that's just the background to their utter disbelief at the world in which they're living right now. You know, if you if you ever sort of drive past a, a park in an early morning and uh, there'll be an ex-army physical personal trainer there with some people and uh, masochists, and, masochists mm -hmm. and that person will be going, will be going, do some press ups and uh, and so okay, fine, I'll do some press ups. Now run on the spot. What I was just and then they have to get themselves up out of the press up position. And they have to run on the spot. <laughs> now run to that tree. Well, I was just so they have to run to the tree and then they, and that's really what it's like for every. Everybody in the world dealing with Trump because you think you're doing one thing. You think, okay, I've understood the task. I have understood the thing that I have to respond to that he has just said. But it, and now he said something completely different, and so I have to drop the thing that I was considering and trying to get my head around and, and respond to, and deal with this next nightmare. And pay you for the pleasure of shouting at me to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. also, it must well, be how civil servants feel about Brexit. I mean, that's, the, yes. you know, given the number and enormity of tasks, it must be like, no, drop this because this one is now blowing up. Except that do you, I, I strongly suspect that that's what's going to happen to, to civil servants in the, uh, in the time coming. So assuming some sort of deal uh, is, is agreed upon. But up to this point, I think civil servants have probably been going, say something. 
Yeah. Anything. Yeah, yeah. Give us any task. Any direction. Well, because you you know you you work in America as well. You've just directed uh, Rebel Wilson, Anne Hathaway, and a talented young actress called Ingrid Oliver. Yes. No. Did she bang on about? Did she, did she keep improvising lines about Brexit? She was. Uh, <laughs> all, it was all like. Well, she does play a French policewoman. In oh. it, so she was able to feel continental. Brilliant. She's good with. She's good with accents. I've noticed. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you, American colleagues, do they? Because Trump is such a huge problem. Um, does it do any? Are they interested in Brexit? Do they care? Does our pain mean anything to them? Yeah, I think, and I think it did before Trump came along. Certainly, I mm. mean, I I, I I had various Americans who I've who I've sort of just worked with ring me up and go, "What what what just <clears throat> happened?" I was, mm. Like people from studios that I've been involved with, just just ringing me up, and going uh, after the Brexit vote, saying, "What? How could that happen? I don't understand." And a lot of my American friends have said, "Please break this." Please break this down for us. We don't we don't get how you got there. Um, I don't know if that's a uh, common set of thoughts or, or um, <laughs> worries uh, in that part of the world, but um, there definitely are. I think they're very aware that Brexit is a um, is a related topic to Trump in yeah. the way that so it's many of the Trump. things. It is our Trump, but also it's but it but it has its roots in some of the same things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and it's and worse than Trump the, in many ways. It is because, because he's, he's time limited. He yeah. can only do two terms. We'll be out I forever. Don't, don't don't challenge him. <laughs> but, that, that, but also that's that that's the problem, isn't it? Is that is that imagining that it's time limited? It's like so. Imagine the people's vote works. Imagine in, in the best uh, that our, our dreams come true, and actually, what's going to happen this afternoon at number ten is Theresa May is going to come out and say, "Do you know what? This was ridiculous. It's all off. Um, uh, we're remaining. Thanks, everybody. Uh, have a lovely Christmas." <laughs> actually, uh, we we would be going. Well, no, I would be thinking first of all, "Hooray!" and then about five seconds later, I would think, "Well, now what?" Because even if we get our our, our, our most cherished dream, that the, the experience of brexit and the last two years i mean this is not this is this is not a time limited thing if we limit it this will go on the culture and on and on. the culture will go on. on and the same is true of trump trump will be out of that office but the, uh, he has opened a horrific portal this is this is why we invite comedians on cheer us all up I have to finally it's time for the brexit time capsule where we store all the things we'll miss if and when we leave the eu and some things we'll need when we're out on our own chris hansen your guest What's going in our sub-zero storage chamber? Dignity. <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting dignity and a sense of um, a sense of honesty and trustworthiness in there because I think that is what we are about to jettison as a as a country. <laughs> this is why and you so invite <laughs> the comedians. <on. laughs> It's all the love. And some toilet roll. Hey! Hey! I would, I, what I'm going to put in there is the tax records of or the residents of 55 tough countries. <laughs> <laughs> so at least someone in the future <laughs> will, will know. be able to see it. Yeah. That they're in fact the tax avoiders axis. <laughs> and for our closing language clip, here's some Slovene from Martina Klanchisha. Slovene, like in Doctor Who. <laughs> Slo- as in Slovenia. Oh, I see. Slovene. Courtesy of her partner, Jamie Henderson. Draga Velika Britanija, naslednji rek ni slovenskega, pač pa italijanskega izvora. Torej je njegov pomen toliko bolj evropejski. Mati idioto je vedno noseča. That means, dear Great Britain, the following saying is actually from Italian. Italian inside Slovene, like a 
to Durkin, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like that Christmas meat, which makes the sentiment even more European. It says, the mother of idiots is always pregnant. That. <laughs> That's, That's really great. Love that. That's great. Remember Got a new Twitter bio. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, we need your European clips. So record a short message on your phone, keep it cleanish, and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. Thanks, Martina and Jamie. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show, unless something terrifying has happened in the cabinet meeting. Has anything terrifying happened in the cabinet meeting? Not really. No. About tiny leave means leave down of about eight people. Right. I don't think we're going to redo the show for them. <laughs> Chris Hasson, thanks for coming in. What are you up to next? Uh, what am I up to next? Uh, what, uh, today? Generally and in life. Uh, generally. Um, I'm just uh, starting work on a sitcom and uh, writing some other stuff. And I'm on tour with Glyndebourne Opera because uh, that's oh. what I'm really interested Yay. in. It is actually what I'm really interested in. Nice. Yeah, nice. nice. I'm not singing, don't worry. <laughs> Safe to come. Uh, sorry. Thanks, Chris. Listeners, don't forget those tickets for Romaniacs Live on Monday, 10th of December in London. Tickets are on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks for naming Alex. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional massive shout-out to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks for me to Lars Zua, Blaise Bakish, Christian Muller, Roz Lucy Armstrong and Andrew Wheatstone. And thanks from me to Nick Durrant, Debbie Honor, Ben Allen, Matthew Two First Names Scott, Andrew Pickles, and Andrew McKay. Finally, thanks from me to Sean Ellis, Trisha Hart, Kieran Darcy, Peter Laws, Sally Summers, and Lewis Jenkins. Many thanks. We'll see you next time. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreo. Audio production was by me, Elsie Bath, and producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmaster production. Mm-hmm.